0: everyone welcome to the speak up erica podcast i'm your host erica and this podcast talks about things that we're scared to talk about but should i'm back for part 2 talking about sexuality on the girl on harlow street with author rosemary and editor kendra hi
1: so rosemary actually i was thinking about what gets you in the mood to write and how you come about your stories um, how did you come about writing certain aspects of the novel what What gets you into that place that you can bring about these stories? Well, if we're gonna
2: talk about um like in general, um I guess i i I miss England deeply, and so you'll find some really nostalgic uh, sort of writing in there about about England um and all I have to do is like close my eyes and you know think of my grandparents or my daughter who's there right now and um you know how much I miss them and then that can definitely like bring up you know feelings of 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 missing of nostalgia and all of that so for for that's that's one thing Um, another thing that I will do and this is just in general general is if I am irritated at something in my real life, you know, not real life, I'm going to call it my my off page life, because my on page life is quite real to me. Um, I will crank up the volume on that, and then go and write a rage scene on a piece of paper. So like whatever I'm going through in my in my in my normal life, on the emotional level, I can turn up the dial to that, and then again pump it into whatever's happening, um, you know, on on the on the screen as I'm writing. When it comes to the sexually explicit material, I already told you I listen to music, I get in a meditative state, I open myself to, you know, the the characters as they, you know, come through me, whether it's through their conversations or or you know what they're doing in a certain scene, and then the scene itself just opens up into that. Um, another thing that I do, which is maybe not recommended, is procrastination. So, like, sometimes there have been times where I have stood in front of my kitchen looking at the mess, I've got lots of dishes to do, and I'm like, hmm, I think I'll go write a love scene instead, and then like, I'll run on and you know, leave the dishes and, you know, go and because it's much more fun to write love scenes than to, than to do the dishes or do some, you know, mundane job like that. But on a serious note, another thing that I do is um, look at photographs. And I, the type of photographs I'm talking about would be these sort of artistic photographs of the human body, um, black and white, where you've got lots of Shade and light kind of hitting different places, the type of things you might see in an art gallery. And I look at that form. And I don't do this a lot, but I have done this. And I, I use that as a inspiration, not as a stimulant, but as inspiration on how I'm going to depict the human body. So one image that I'm thinking of would be it doesn't matter whether whether male or female whoever you know they're they're bending over and you see the shadows between their vertebrae and you you sort of have the light hitting their spine and I look at that and I think stepping stones you know stepping stones and the spine is curving toward the nape And I look at the nape and it's like a little gully. And so then all of a sudden looking at that photograph, I have the language that I need, or at least that photograph has brought up certain metaphors in me. And then I'll use that. So his thumbs tripped over the stepping stones of his vertebrae toward the gully in his neck. And so all of a sudden, you this is a a scene between two male characters that i'm thinking of but all of a sudden you have them the body of the landscape and i wouldn't have come up with that if i hadn't looked at the photograph and looked at the vertebrae with the shadow or the light the way it was falling on that photograph and so that's that's something that's something that i've done um i think of this is, again, language itself for me is, is, is fascinating and beautiful. So when I'm thinking of the human body, like metaphorically, think of all the words or the beautiful expressions with the human body, which are just sort of these built-in metaphors. Heartstrings, um, shoulder blades, ribcage temples um what else kneecaps all of a sudden you've got like language that's built into the human body which automatically makes you think of something else I mean if you're looking at at the head, you know you've got temples that's a great word you know she planted a kiss on his temple and then you've got this image of of a temple the crown of a head you know she touched the crown of his head. So we have, you know, the human body has lots of beautiful, beautiful words and beautiful language to play with when you're, when you're writing those scenes. So photographs one, but definitely language itself is an inspiration for those scenes. And the human body for me, um, I compare it to landscape, you know, with like, I gave you the stepping stones example but there are a few times I think too that I can think of when I describe the human body of a lover as home Um, I'm thinking of one scene where um, one lover is sort of imagining the other but the kneecaps are like mountains the the thighs are like slopes the the plains of his stomach um, you know the the lakes of his eyes or something like that. So all of a sudden you've got this continental feeling in 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 the in the body of the lover and and the lover that's imagining him realizes that his home his continent his his country his place is in the body of of the other. Um, so yeah, so two ways: photographs and language itself definitely helps with. With those sorts of, with those sorts of scenes,
0: the scenes that you describe and like um, tying in with the human body and landscape, everything sounds so poetic and so beautiful. I think that also kind of ties into like how graphic can be beautiful, which is also a topic that we talked about yesterday. And um, can you also mention about that aspect as well of like how is graphic beautiful? Yeah, well, I think we have this
2: notion, and I definitely have had it, that graphic, even the word graphic, it sort of conjures up this idea of in your face, um, lurid, lewd, crude, like just very brazen in a way. And when I think of things in life like childbirth, it's graphic there's, it. it is, there's blood involved. I mean, it's, it's graphic and sex is graphic too. And I think it just depends on how you look at graphic because graphic doesn't mean, you know, in your face or lurid or lewd, like graphic sex and childbirth are beautiful. And so I think, you know, and again, it's hard to analyze my own, my own stuff. And I, I do like after I've written it, I I sit back and it's like, what have I just done? And I, I try and, you know, I try and look at what I've done, but I try and choose my words carefully. And this is, I'm contradicting myself because yes, I write with a flow, but while I'm writing with a flow, I'm also choosing my words carefully. I think you can do both at the same time. And so I do draw attention to explicitness, but I choose my words carefully. So for example, one character in this in the Victorian section writes a series of, of sexually explicit letters to another character. This collection of letters, one of the letters is in the novel, the other will be a separate manuscript that people can you know subscribe to if they want to but in these explicit letters uh one of the expressions that stands out in my mind is as the the writer describes intercourse to the the person she's sending the letter to she talks about the crossroads of us and I mean, if, if I'm going to put it in base terms, basically she's looking down at the, at the point where they're, where they're joined. Now, I mean, essentially that's what intercourse is, you know, at a, at a very, you know, very surface physical level. But as soon as I take that and I turn it into the crossroads of us, to me, that's taking something that's could be presented in a very harsh way and I'm making it as beautiful as I can. Another instance that comes to mind is again uh, about the union. Um, I want to describe I want to describe the female's cervix through the eyes of the male character. And I could just say cervix, you know, I could just use that, you know, term. That's okay. But I want to get across that that cervix is beautiful. And in this case, I just think about it. I'm not looking up pictures of, of cerv- cervixes so I can find a metaphor. But immediately, the thing that came to mind is the shape of a diamond. And again, it doesn't matter whether this is an anatomically correct or not. It's the image that came to me. And then I think of the color rose, like sort of like a rose colored diamond. And I think, I don't have the line in front of me, but as this male is describing something like, you know, she she put her, her rose colored, you know, diamond around. I felt it melt all around me. And, and all of a sudden you've got this very sort of gemstone kind of, beautiful image to describe an anatomical part and i'm so what i it is explicit but i'm i'm using language to try and get the idea that that explicitness is is absolutely beautiful and and also just a wonderment of being physically alive so So yes, I guess how I I guess how do I how do I make graphic beautiful? I use a lot of similes, a lot of metaphors, um, and
1: yeah, I just use a lot of poetic poetic language. Well, I think it it comes through. Uh, Your master's was in poetry, and you can see a lot of connection between the Victorian poetry that you've studied and the Victorian aspects of the story and then the poetry that's inherent in the way in which you write.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, you know, there's also some great words that we don't use very much. Um, So in the Victorian section, I don't weigh it down with heavy, ornate language, but I do revive some beautiful Victorian words just to, or they're not Victorian words, but words that were a little bit more archaic, you know, to sort of, again, give a little bit of a romantic or a soft edge to it so I love the word beguile lots of people are beguiled by this that and the other or lots of people are besotted Um, uh, yeah there's lots of Victorian you know sort of like more like older words that that I'll bring back in in a scene like
1: that not weigh a scene down but
2: I'll, I'll bring those back No, it just adds to
1: the tone and the voice. I don't think it takes away at all.
2: Yeah, another thing too, like just to go back about the graphic scenes, definitely. So you've got this poetic language, but also then playing with the other things, like I was telling you about the pendant, or even the way that lovers speak to each other. So for example, like, I don't have to tell you what they're doing, but I can through the language that they're using, like, if I have lots of dashes between words, you know that they're having difficulty speaking. And then as the as the moment or as the experience progresses, then, you know, the, the sentences become more <laughs> and more broken. And so I'm really interested in conveying this moment, playing with all these other elements, whether that be the way that the, the jewelry is swinging, the way that the language is is becoming more and more broken and and the breasts are are becoming faster the way um, with the metaphors, with the similes and, and, and doing it that way. So, and for me, it's a challenge, but it's, it's just, it's fun.
1: (laughs) I'm eccentric. I just find it fun. And on that note, Rosemary, um, it's kind of interesting to see how the themes of like playfulness and fun come into the Victorian section specifically but the novel as a whole when it comes to women enjoying sex and having that sexuality as a part of their enjoyment and for their own pleasure not just something that they're doing out of obligation or out of quote-unquote duty to someone else. Um, Do you want to talk about how specifically how Justine kind of subverts that expectation and how she's kind of taking her sexuality into her own hands to kind of emphasize her agency and maybe how she's kind of a role model, I think, for us in the modern day, how we don't necessarily owe sex to anyone and that we can have sex just for enjoyment and pleasure of our own and not out of duty pleasing someone else or doing it for solely for reproductive purposes what do
2: mm-hmm. you think yeah so to talk about Justine and this Justine just to to let people know she is sort of the, the main first she's the main character in the Victorian manuscript which takes up a lot of the novel and she's a first person narrator so um, you know Phil largely this police officer is 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 reading um about Justine's life and he's hearing her in the first person. So Justine um she has two marriages and neither one of these marriages I would say are marriages based on true love. So the the true love experiences she has are with two different men. Different times in her life, and within the context of of these relationships, I'm thinking of one. I definitely show her um, being submissive to to her husband, um, and I'm even going to say being raped by her husband because he wants to have sex with her. She says no, and he just goes ahead anyway. Um, and in the Victorian time I mean even you know legally it was it, this is, has big air quotes around it but it was his right to to sort of t- to do that and in these marriages uh, you know she's not free so I think that the marriage both of her marriages enables me to show you what her her day-to-day life you know would have would have been like as a victorian woman where i'm able to explore and give her the agency is through these they're not affairs for her um you know because she's not necessarily married when she's if she is with one of them but she's not married with the other one um, with the other uh, love relationship or the other true love relationship, but it's it's with these other men that fall outside of the parameters of marriage that she's able to have, you know, sexual freedom and also through her writing and through her imagination. I'm able to show you both sides, but in order to show you the agency, the freedom, um, I have to step outside of of the marriage to, to do that.
0: Um, I know when you're mentioning about Justine and you're also mentioning that she has like other lovers as well. And like yesterday we were talking about um, playfulness, but also the, psych- the, the counterbalance, I guess, of this psych psycho can't pronounce it, psychological, psychological cruelty. Mm-hmm. Um, can you also mention what you, you mean by that? Well, first
2: of all, I think it goes with, you know, like I I have fun when I write. And I also, you know, made a decision that I would let the characters go where they wanted to go with the story. And I would try not to worry about too much what what other people think. Um, But um, with the fun part. um, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I have fun when I write and and goodness knows, like sometimes I write these scenes and I don't know where they've come from. Um, but one of the the things I have fun with is uh, is a chastity belt and I mean a chastity belt was something that was used to control women but Justine gets a hold of this thing and she decides that she's going to use it for for you know something that she she thinks would be a great idea which is to actually wear it to try and you know turn a lover on and the whole thing backfires so at the beginning like I have it so that you know she's using that agency and this of course is outside of a marriage this is you know with love interest number one and she puts this thing on and she's like oh we're going to have fun with this well the first thing that goes wrong is when the, the partner sees it he's horrified like you know that thing looks vicious what you know and so it, it fails on that level but then the key gets lost And so it kind of became like a comedic thing. Um, So for me, it's fun, but there's like a little bit of a message behind the fun, you know, and I do that a lot. Like I'll write something and something kind of humorous or mildly humorous will happen. And when I'm writing it, I'm just sort of going with the flow. And then afterwards I look at it and I think, no, there's actually a little bit of a message behind, behind the fun with, uh cruelty, I do explore that i mean I'm thinking about one thing i I wrote before this podcast is I was thinking how this story is multifaceted in that it sex is just one facet in this multifaceted story, but sex is also multifaceted right so you know there's there's fun and then there's a more darker side to it, or then there's romantic and you know. Um, and, and so I want to explore all the facets of it, just like I do with all the other things in the novel. I want to look at everything from different angles. I do the same thing with this as well. So I, I look at it. Um, I examine some psychological, some psychological cruelty that, that, you know, comes into play in, in Justine's relationships. And there are a few instances where, you know, she is very psychologically Psych- now I'm having trouble with it, psychologically cruel. Um, but I go a step further with this. And again, I don't know where this comes from in me because I do live my life as a fairly kind uh, individual and I strive to be kind. Um, but she also, these, these twisted things that she does uh, add to the pleasure of the other person. Um, and I know, you know, we explore in society, you do get a lot of sex and violence. And I think that that's, that's already been done, you know. Um, So if I'm gonna explore a darker side of sex, I'm, I'm going to do it in a different way, I want to look at a psychological cruelty. Um, And the person that she's, she does this with a couple of people, But one of the the people says you're like marble and the darkness that runs through you is like the streaks in marble. And if we were to take those streaks away, you wouldn't be as interesting. You'd just be bland, you know, because if you look at marble and it has no lines and it has no dark lines, well, then it's sort of just a void. And I also think it allows me to show a depth of character that Justine is not perfect. Um, that she does have an edge to her, and I think that that edge makes her more more interesting. Exactly like with this sort of marble, um, with this marble analogy. So I don't want to divulge. All of the instances in which she is cool, because then I'd be giving away some key, some key scenes of the novel. But it's it's in there as well.
0: I think um, going back to you talking about um, sex having a um, being multifaceted, I guess one of them could also be that it is a gift, which is another point um, that we brought up yesterday during our discussion. And I guess Rosemary, could you kind of mention what? you can you mean by sex being um, a gift mm-hmm. well um it is finite it
2: will it will end um if if there are multiple lovers or over over a lifetime it will it will end with one relationship and start up with in, a, in another one but it will end and it will end when we die it, it's 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 a it's one of the you know wonderful things if it's healthy it's one of the wonderful things about being alive and it's part of our part of our you know human experience and and it can be a wonderful part of our of our human experience in order to show it is a gift the only way that I can do that well there are two ways I can do it but but One way I do is to always draw attention to, not always, but a lot of the time, draw attention to our mortality in those scenes. So, for example, um, and this is where the language comes in, a lot of the time I will use the bone words as opposed to the body parts so that I am drawing the reader's attention to the skeletal frame in you know, in the lovers. So for example, you know, I've already used the word, you know, ribcage, but ribcage, spinal cord, um, you know, knuckles, I felt uh, her knuckles or I I held his skull in my hands. So that you are reading about uh, sexual union But at the same time as reading about the sexual union, you are also being made aware that um, that the lovers will die. And so then by doing that, I hope that I'm showing the ephemeral nature of, of sex. And one thing, um, that I don't think I brought up in our discussion. Uh, years ago, I was at the Gardner Museum in Toronto, and it was a, an exhibit of Mexican ceramics. And there was this, this sort of sculpture. I don't know, not sculpture, but like figures. You know, like I, they might have been paper mache of uh, a living person entangled with a skeleton of... Uh, of a lover now I'm a words person I tend not to be a visual art person I think there's maybe been three times in my life where visual art has moved me to tears um but I was looking at this it was a very small you know very very small sculpture we'll call it a sculpture and it just sort of hit me hit me in the chest I mean I had an instant lump in the throat tear in the eye because it just drove home that you know one day you know our lovers will die and one or the other and 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 we won't be together but it's not just that because in this statue the two were still together and the Mexican belief is that the dead are all around us it's a very uh death pervades you know Mexican art if you think of the day of the dead Um, the dead are not dead they're they're still here and to deviate a little bit into Spanish I just can't help it but in English we have one verb to be right to be and in Spanish you have two verbs to be ser and estar And estar is a verb which is used with states which are changeable. This is really, this is a simplification. This is your mini Spanish lesson that you weren't asking for in the podcast. But anyway, so estar is used with changeable states. And it is used with romantic love. And it's used with death. And I can remember, you know, my very first Spanish class at university and the professor was saying this and somebody said yeah but death is permanent why does it go with that verb and why doesn't it go with the other one and the professor said well how do you know that death is permanent you haven't died right so he got a little got a little laugh and then he said but you have to understand in spanish-speaking countries death is not final death is simply a state where you move into another another state and there's also a heavy, you know, indigenous belief that, you know, all sort of wrapped up in, in the Catholicism that the the death, that the dead are all around us. And I looked at that little statue, that little sculpture, and I just really felt, well, yes, those lovers are still together in death, still, you know, one alive, one dead. And for me, um, you know, I think, this is something that I have tried to convey in, in this story. And the mentality has definitely become part of my mindset. And it's in the novel, even though like, you know, this is a novel set in England, there are some, you know, beliefs
0: that are, that are in there. So, so yes. Thank you, Rosemary. Um, And I know uh, both of you, Kendra and Rosemary, were mentioning both the modern era and the Victorian era. I think if you could give a little bit of context what you mean by that. Is it um, the novel is split up into two different sections? Yeah, so it, it starts out in the modern era because you've got this police
2: officer who's investigating, or not investigating, but he's you know, gone to this house where there's been a suicide. And uh, this is all modern times. I mean, I've I've chosen 2019 when I started writing the novel. So COVID, nobody's wearing a mask <laughs> in this story. And um yeah, so so this is the modern part. And Phil, of course, this police officer with his problems that he's having at home, you know, all in the modern, all in modern times, present day. But the manuscript that arrives at the police station that Aubrey Holloway, the, the young woman who's ended her life, has written, that takes place in the Victorian time because what she's doing or what she has done in the months leading up to, to her death is she has written about these Victorian ancestors that that were the original owners of the house in which you know, she's ended her life. So you know, that manuscript that Phil is reading is set in, I believe, 1849 and in 1873 to 1875. So it it covers two sections of of the 19th century.
0: Gotcha, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much, Kendra and Rosemary, for speaking on the podcast and talking about The Girl on Harlow Street. Rosemary I think we've covered so many topics and and even changed the way that I think about sexuality because whenever we even just whenever someone says the word sexuality you kind of think your mind into these other ways that society has portrayed that word so it's it's nice and it's refreshing to get a different sense of it and in a more artistic way and more kind of meaningful way I guess you could say. Um, So thank you so much for both of you for coming on and chatting with me. Um, You're
2: welcome.
0: (laughs) I would also like to ask Rosemary, how can we support you and the girl on Harlow street and kind of where can we read, read your book? Yeah.
2: So, yeah. So I, I do have a Patreon um, page and Erica, are you going to put the link or whatever? I don't know how that's going to work, but um, on Patreon um, it's, for those of you who don't know, it's it's a subscription uh, setup. So you know you pay a certain amount of money a month to to access content, and depending on what subscription you sign up for, more content is is released. Um, but even at my sort of base level, um, if you subscribe, you have access to the novel. You have access on a serial basis. It'll it'll take about eighteen months to probably I I don't know how long it's going to take, but it could take anywhere from 18 to 24 months to run. Um, But you have access to the novel, you have access to the illustrations, you have access to behind the scenes content and um, videos, I believe. And um, so that starts in November, that starts November the fifth. However, right now you can go on to Patreon and Erica will put the link. And you can actually read the first. We're calling it a first episode because this is set up like a like a series. But you can read the first chapter, the first episode for free. That gives you a chance to see how I write, how the story is being set up. Um, and there are also a few articles up there that you can also read uh, for free, just to get a feel for, you know, a feel for the the series before. You know before you sign up for it, it just to see whether whether it's something that you'd like to do and we're also having a zoom launch event which is completely open um there's no charge for that on november the 6th at no yeah november the 6th at 3 p.m and erica is organizing organizing that
0: yeah it's gonna be uh, I think it's going to be a really awesome book launch and I'm, I'm very excited Kendra will be there also sharing about um, her part in the in the novel and a bunch of uh, the the team of the Girl on Harlow Street team will be there as well so it's it's going to be it's going to be really fun <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. yeah so my um, so Christine the mm-hmm. the illustrator she's going to do a presentation um, and my son Benjamin who I mean Benjamin's kind of been this family member consultant throughout the whole thing um minus the topic for today (laughs) definitely not but I know Benjamin also is going to do a presentation so um and Kendra yeah so it's not just going to be me we have some things planned
0: yeah I'll, I'll definitely be putting all of these links in um the podcast notes as well as um the event will be in collaboration with Locals Festival. So I'll put um, all the marketing content there. And if if there's any um, social media that you would like to shout out as well, Rosemary. Yeah, so the girl on Harlow Street is on Instagram,
2: Facebook, um, and LinkedIn. And um, yeah, and Patreon.
0: Yes, I'll put all of those links in the, in the notes as well so people can get access to it.
2: I also wanted to say thank you, Kendra, for coming and joining me. Thanks, Erica, for this is I'm, I'm really excited because this is my first podcast ever. And, you know, I don't know, it's just really, really great.
0: So thank you, both, both of you.
1: Yeah, thank you, Erica. It was so much fun to talk about
0: it. Yeah, I, I'm very excited for like the future of your book, Rosemary, or I guess I keep saying book, but it's it's more than just a book um so i'm very excited for the future of the girl in Harlow street and i can't wait i'm very excited for all your future projects and you too kendra yeah thank you yeah, thank you. Awesome. yeah. awesome so um, thanks both um so thank you everyone who's listening and thank you again rosemary and kendra bye